the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Five one one. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. in the morning as they passed by they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots and Peter calling to remembrance saith unto him master behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away Jesus answered them have faith in God for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when you pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is Mark, the 11th chapter. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel, and with me in studio is also my wife, Alexandra. Welcome, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us today. We're from the National Prayer Chapel. And we want to open for you a deep understanding 
of the requirements of God that we could walk in faith and in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now this passage that I've just shared with you out of the 11th chapter of Mark, it says one thing very clearly. One, that you can have the same faith that Jesus operated in. But there are conditions. We need to understand what those conditions are. They must be met or we will not walk in faith. Faith is built or destroyed based on our actions. And so we're going to share that with you today. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, I'm asking that you would make abundantly clear to every person listening today to this broadcast what the basic requirements are that we could walk in faith and victory and be filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Would you make them very plain to us? And would you give us the courage to meet these conditions? I pray in your holy name. Amen. Yes. And again, we're speaking from Mark 11, verses 20 through 25. This, this verse that reads, Have faith in God, you'll see in some translations, like including the Lavender's New Testament, it says, Have faith of God, or faith that comes from God. So as we, as we were speaking earlier, several, last week, about the prayer of faith, this is the kind of faith that's being described in this passage. So God gives us this faith, but that's not just going to happen as we passively sit around and don't do anything. So we're going to talk about the price of having this kind of faith. So again, God does give this faith. He will give it to every person who wants it badly enough to pay the price required. So what is that price of faith? We're going to talk about each of these more in depth. The price of faith includes obedience. It includes godliness and holiness. Following in the footsteps of Jesus. Living free from condemnation. So having a clean conscience before God. The Apostle Paul said that he was very diligent to make sure that he had a conscience void of offense before God and men. That's one of the requirements because we can't exercise faith if we feel ourselves to be condemned. Another price, part of the price of faith, is walking in the full light of the scriptures. So let's look at 1 John 3.21. The Apostle John writes... If our heart condemn us not, then, and only then, have we confidence toward God. Let me read a few more passages. In verse 22, he says, And whatsoever ye ask, ye receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another 
as he gave us commands. And he that keepeth his commands dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So, very clearly, 1 John is saying, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. So condemnation in our heart will destroy our confidence in God. Yes. And the only way we can receive is to have confidence in God. Yes, so we see from this scripture that faith and confidence are the same thing. If you look at Webster's Dictionary as well, it defines faith as complete confidence in a person. And we know that God is absolutely someone we can trust, that we can believe his word. And this is something we're fond of saying in the Christian church. But is it, does it actually describe how you're walking? Is, does your life reflect that you have absolute confidence in God? So the other side of this, sometimes we can get tripped up by thinking that faith is supposed to be some kind of mysterious feeling or something thrilling, something that suddenly comes upon us. Or a positive affirmation that we say over and over and over and mm -hmm. over. Now, it's true that sometimes when we exercise faith, we do feel great joy, but, the, but faith is not itself a feeling. Faith is that confidence in God. And we can look at our common daily activities of life and see the way that we exercise faith. So, for example, if you write a letter, say you're going to write a letter to the National Prayer Chapel. So you write your letter, you go to the post office, you put the letter in an envelope, you put a stamp on it, and then you drop the letter in the mailbox and you have confidence that we will receive your letter probably within a few days. So you don't when you go in, when you go to the post office and you drop the letter in the mail slot, you probably don't have like a sudden overwhelming feeling of yes, they're going to get my letter. You probably aren't even thinking about it. You just take it for granted almost. It just doesn't enter your mind to doubt that we'll receive the letter. So this is a way we can understand how we can have faith in the promises of God if we've done our part. So to go back to the example of the letter, if you wrote the letter but you didn't actually bring it to the post office, that would be a good reason to think that we wouldn't receive it, right? Or if you put the letter in the mailbox slot but you forgot to put the stamp on, then there's a reason to doubt whether we would receive the letter. So this is how it is with the promises of God. As you read through the scriptures, you will often find specific conditions attached to the promises. We shared one last week from the Psalms of a promise for parents to pray for their children, and it laid out specific character traits that the parent needs to have in order for God to answer their prayer for the conversion of their children. So sometimes these conditions are directly attached to the promise. So if we are sensible that we've met those conditions, then we can have that confidence that God will answer. 
there's also, as we're sharing today, there's more general promises, like having faith and not doubting is a more general condition. And as we said, if our heart does not condemn us. So what I'm trying to say is that's not attached to, like, say, the promise for parents for their children to be converted, but that is required for us to exercise faith as a general principle. So if we refuse or if we neglect to do our part when we pray, then there isn't a reason to expect an answer from God. But if we do do our part, then God absolutely guarantees to do his part. Now this is true when we're praying for anything. It's true if you're praying for healing. It's true if you're praying for the conversion of a particular person. It's true if you're praying for revival. We're not going to call God a liar by doubting whether he will do what he said he would do. So we can have this complete confidence in God. Okay, so now we know what it is we need to obtain, that is, faith. Let's consider the biblical methods of obtaining that faith. Now, no matter how trustworthy an acquaintance may be, we can never feel entirely sure that he merits complete confidence until we are thoroughly acquainted with that person. This is the reason many people fail to trust God. We become acquainted with God by walking with him day by day, by reading his word, faith, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. So read God's word. Read it as if it were a letter from a trusted friend. Consider it the final authority. Turn resolutely away from books and conversations and entertainment that draw you away from the word of God. Or which question whether you can trust the word of God. And frankly, we both know people who say they're Christians, who want God to answer their prayers, but they refuse to spend that time reading the word. And because they refuse to spend the time reading the word, they have almost no faith. And then the devil comes and buffets them and tears them away and tempts them and they have no strength. They have no ability to withstand the attacks of the devil. So Jesus accused a religious group in his day of making the word of God of none effect through their personal traditions and of teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Many today set at naught the promises of God. Basically, they're teaching on the things that they've observed around them or what their private desires are, but they don't preach on the word of God. 
Faith can only be built upon the power and success of the word of God, never upon our own or another's weakness or failures. Now, faith, having been planted in the heart through the word, must be watered and nourished through a genuine love for God. Perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18 Fear is the direct opposite of faith. In fact, fear is the murderer of faith. There's no fear in love. You cannot have faith if you do not love God. You can hope he will heal. You can hope he will answer your prayer. But you can't have faith that he will. Yes, and what this looks like practically is someone is sick and they say, well, I know God can heal me. I know God's able to heal me. But that's not faith. And so they remain sick. And we have to have that absolute confidence And that confidence and that love for God springs out of reading the scriptures. Now, I'm not talking about studying the scriptures. It is important to study the scriptures. I'm talking about recreationally reading the scriptures. What do I mean? I mean just sitting down and communing with God as we read through the word of God, as we read through the stories of God's interaction with people, we begin to see who he is. We begin to see how he operates. We begin to see what causes him heartburn. We begin to see what irritates him and what draws him close to us. We begin to learn his ways. You cannot love God if you don't know his ways. You need to know God. You need to know Jesus. When you know him, you then have an opportunity to love him. And if you love him, you will keep his commandments. I want to take you to 1 John, the fourth chapter. 1 John, the fourth chapter. going to read for you there's no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear and then to the gospel of John John 14 let me read this passage for you please Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall be, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. 
But now here's the condition. If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And then verse 21, this is John 15, I'm sorry, John 14, verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them he it is that loveth me and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father and i will love him and will manifest myself to him he's saying that jesus will make himself known to you if you simply obey what he's asked you to do verse 23 if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him, or make our home with him. So Jesus is saying, look, if you want to walk with me, then you're going to have to be prepared to obey my commandments. Failure to keep the commandments of Jesus is the reason that many do not have faith. Galatians 5, 6 tells us that faith worketh by love. Love is manifested by simple obedience to the commands of Jesus. Disobedience to the known will of God indicates a lack of faith and love. If we love God, we will be concerned about knowing and doing His will. The greatest hindrance to faith today is disobedience. The greatest hindrance to faith today is disobedience. The Apostle John said, Beloved, if our hearts condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. 1 John three twenty one through 22 so real faith, living, vital faith, is impossible to people who are not in harmony with the personality and the Spirit of God because they are living in disobedience to God's commandments. Many people today who profess to be Christians are living under constant condemnation for sin and disobedience to the known will and word of God. Such a person can never have a real faith until he has first repented of his sins, turned his back upon them. For only then will the condemnation leave. Only then can you have a clear conscience toward God, which brings perfect confidence 
or faith. Now let's stop and talk about this for a minute. Confidence in God is destroyed because living in condemnation. And so the trick that's played today is that a person says, I'm not going to live in condemnation for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans, the 8th chapter, verses 1, 2, 3. But the reason they say they have no condemnation is because they have seared their conscience. And so their conscience no longer rebukes them for the sin. I think, though, that a lot of people do actually feel condemnation and just try to convince themselves that they're not really condemned by clinging to that promise. But I think for most people, you do still have a feeling of guilt and condemnation in your conscience, and you're just trying to cover that over by clinging to a promise of God, but that's only actually meant, Romans 8, 1, 2, and 3, that's only meant for someone who has repented and turned away from all their sins and who is now walking without sin. And that's what it means to be in Christ. So you can't be in Christ and in sin at the same time. So you can't claim that promise if you're still in sin. I came out of the bank one day. It was a Friday afternoon. And I met a friend that I'd known for some time. He was the leader of the men's ministry in a large congregation. And he said to me, Pastor, why don't you come and go to the movies with me this afternoon? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, every Friday afternoon, I go to an action flick. I love to watch the violence. I love to watch the action. It gives me an adrenaline rush. I said, what are you talking about? That's unclean. He said, oh, come on, pastor, that's not unclean, that's just manly. And so he had apparently no conviction of sin about watching gratuitous violence. Now, maybe he was fooling me. Maybe his conscience really was pressing him. But I've spoken with other men who eat up all of the wicked entertainment of our day and seem to be very pious and say there's no connection between my love of the world over here and my love for Jesus over here. I'm covered. The blood of Jesus has covered me. I don't have to stop loving the world. Whatever the, their excuse is, the fact is that they don't pray in faith and they don't have confidence in the promises of God. That's absolutely true. So that reveals that they know that they're not in a position to pray in faith. Or another person that we know has a filthy habit and he freely engages in it. And when spoken to about it, his attitude was, we're not all perfect. We can't be perfect. God understands. 
But this man can't walk in faith. This man can't walk in Holy Spirit baptism. And if you're making those kinds of excuses, you know it's an excuse. You know it's not true. So, I mean, before I was before I was a Christian, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I was living with somebody I wasn't married to. And I just kept waiting for someone to confront me about it. But nobody ever did. But I, I was kind of walking on eggshells because I knew it was wrong. But if someone had asked me, I wouldn't have admitted that. So that's just... The thing is, if you were willing to actually admit it was wrong, you would probably repent and you would cease to be a sinner. So the fact that you make excuses is just because you've never repented. And if you believe that the power of the blood of Jesus is insufficient to break the bondage of your sin, if you believe that the opiate addicted person or the alcohol addicted person simply has a less acceptable form of addiction and that you are the same as they are but you have a more acceptable form of sin there's no difference between you you're all forgiven and you're all on your way to heaven if you believe those kinds of things you cannot walk in faith and victory in Jesus. Not at all. I mean, we are called out of that darkness. Let's continue. Let's talk about specifically the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the area that we are crying out to God about. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I've come to a point in my life where I finally just said, I can't do anything for the kingdom of God that has any lasting value without the baptism, Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm very concerned about those who will say, oh, pastor, I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. But they have no flock. They have no one they're bringing to Jesus. They are not in any way filled with the power of God for the healing of the sick and the restoring of the blind. They don't bring revival. They're clouds without water. They're a mist without watering the earth. I want the fullness. And I know only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we enter into the work that Jesus has called us to. So let's talk about conditions for receiving the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, yes. So, after you become a Christian, you have left the way of the world. You have left your sin. If you don't soon go on to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you will again begin to feel condemned 
And the reason for that is because you have enough light now that you've been converted, now that you have received a measure of the Holy Spirit and you can understand the scriptures. As you read the book of Acts, as you read every New Testament description of the Christian experience, you'll say, well, that's not what my Christian experience looks like. And what this is, is it's a failure to receive the Holy Spirit. You could, because you know that you should be walking in the way that Jesus walked. You know that you should be walking in the way the apostles walked, in the way that the early church walked. But you aren't. In Acts 19.2, the question is asked, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? So this is a fair question to ask Christians. Paul asked it to a group of 12 believers at Ephesus. And they said, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Ghost. But then once they'd heard and Paul laid hands on them, they received it. So every Christian should have this experience, not only because God commanded it, although that's reason enough, but also because every Christian needs this power in order to effectively work and witness for the Lord. As we've shared earlier, Several times in the New Testament church, every Christian was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Christian individuals and groups spoken of in the New Testament were baptized with the Holy Ghost as a separate and different experience from conversion, usually after conversion or, or very close to the time of conversion. The disciples of Jesus are an example of this. So they were all saved, we would say, in as much as Christ had commissioned them to preach the gospel. Well, before he was crucified, Christ commissioned his disciples to preach the gospel, to heal the sick. He gave them power and authority over devils, and he sent them out by twos into the villages. You can read that in Luke chapter 9. He says in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says that the disciples' name were, names were already written in heaven which we would say means they were saved. But Jesus did command them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. That's Acts 1, 4 through 5. And then Luke twenty four forty nine. And behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. So this command wasn't just to a few Christians in days gone by, but this command is for Christians everywhere today. We looked at that this earlier this week when we looked at Mark, when it said, These signs shall follow those who believe. So if you believe, that means those signs should be following you. It wasn't just for the early church. So, Peter... But, but wait a minute. Mm -hmm. We know why the church teaches that it was only for the early church. Because of their disobedience and because of their hardness of heart, they grieved the Holy Spirit from themselves and from their organizations. And so it's easier to say, oh, that was only for back then, in order not to incriminate yourself 
in any way for lacking that power. I'm not willing to do that anymore. Yes. Peter also said that this promise was for us. You can read in Acts 2, 38 to 39. Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Yes. And this is who the promise is for. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So we are those who are far off, but we're called by God. And it's all, you see how it's all together. It's repent, be baptized for the remission of sins, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you wouldn't say, well, I can repent and be baptized, but then not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no basis in the in this text to try to separate the two. It's a package deal. So we have strong evidence that the, it is a command of God for each of us to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yes. So it's not just a privilege for just a select few, but it's a command of God to every Christian to be baptized in the Spirit. You can look at Ephesians 5.18. The Apostle Paul wrote, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Since this is a command, we must be obedient to the command. So, now that you've heard this and you have the light on it, God expects you to walk in that light. And if you fail to do that, if you just try to blow off this broadcast, you're going to feel that condemnation come upon you because you now have light that God does desire you to receive this incredible gift of him actually coming and living in you and living out his life in you and working with signs and wonders on the earth. And if you just blow that off, you're going to go into condemnation and you won't be able to pray in faith. John three nineteen says, this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So if you have another motive, that will lead you to reject this message. And as a result, we have many Christians today who are living more or less in a state of condemnation because they have not made a consecration of full obedience to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It means that you go on your knees before God and you actually make a commitment to him. It's not something you just think like, I think I've made that commitment to God. But you actually, you know, set apart a period where you go into your prayer closet and you make that consecration to God. You say, I'm not going to turn away from you. I'm not going to sin against you. I'm going to obey everything I know to obey. And as you give me more light, then I'll obey in those increased areas. As you give me more responsibility, I'll continue to obey. And I accept the gospel and soul winning is to be the main work of my life. My primary purpose in life is no longer a secular job, even if I'm working one. But the primary purpose of my life is to win souls and to advance the kingdom. I want to stop you a moment. How is it possible 
that I've been a Christian all my life and never heard that said before. How is it possible that we have not heard that there is only one commission, and that is to be fishers of men? That we are called by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And we are called by the Great Commission to go out and put into practice those very things that we've been called by Jesus to do for his kingdom. I listened to a young man today. He's in college. He doesn't know if he wants to be in criminal justice or if he wants to do this or that, I said to him, pray and ask Jesus. You see, you don't go into the criminal justice field, or you don't go into being a policeman, or you don't go into being an attorney, because that's where your gifts lie. You go where Jesus calls you, because in that place, he has a ministry and a mission for you to accomplish. Let's but, make it very clear. Mm -hmm. But the point is that you have to make this full consecration to God before you can receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So he says in John fifteen seven, If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, Ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. One must abide in Jesus to be in a position to exercise real faith before he can receive the faith that God gives. God does not give faith to people who do not abide in him. If he did, Anyone, drunkards, harlots, thieves, murders, the enemies of the kingdom of God, they would all be able to exercise faith and receive from God anything they ask. But since the blessings of God are for those who serve him and put him first in their lives, we know we must abide in Christ before faith can actually be exercised. So let's look at God's word for a definition of abiding in Christ. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. 1 John 2.6 In this verse it's quite clear that if we profess to abide in Christ, we should be walking as he walked. If you are not walking today as Christ walked, you are not abiding in him. And it's no wonder you have no faith. You cannot be on real faith ground until you are abiding in Christ and walking as he walked. This is not only possible, it is the command of God. Now you say, Pastor, I can't put on a robe and walk around Palestine and Israel. No, that's not 
what he's speaking about. He's speaking about spiritually where you come to a point in your life where you say, my life is about Jesus. My life is about the kingdom of God. My time, my energy, my love. One man said, and I so agree, every person will follow the love of their heart. What is the love of your heart? Is Jesus the love of your heart? To walk as Jesus walked means that he only did what the Holy Spirit told him to do. He only spoke the words the Father gave him to speak. So this is not walking in my strength and in my power and in my gifts. It's walking in the spirit of the living God. Walking as Jesus walked, as we see in Hebrews and in First Peter, also includes walking in righteousness and not walking in sin. Jesus did not walk in sin. First Peter two twenty one to twenty two says Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who did no sin. So we know Christ did not sin. And he didn't make any excuses for anyone else who was walking in sin. He said, stop sinning. And he resisted the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And I'm certain that he was tempted times after that. He resisted even though he was tempted just like we are yet he was without sin. So he's our example, and he's ready to help us walk the way he walked. And that's why it says in 1 John 3, 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Now, we're aware that what we're saying is contrary to almost all of today's religious teachings. We're also aware that multitudes who claim to be children of God and believe in the miracle-working power of God have prayed again and again without being able to exercise the faith to have what they have prayed for. Now, we're not dealing with opinions here. There is a reason why God does not answer your prayers. God is not a respecter of persons. It is because the person who is praying has been unwilling to pay the price of faith, which is obedience and holiness. Hope is available to people without holiness, but faith is not. If people without holiness could have faith, they could have anything they desire from God, for God's guarantee to those who have faith is, whatever ye ask for in prayer, believe, and ye shall receive. Matthew twenty-one, twenty-two. God also said, follow peace and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. It's a common teaching today that everyone sins all the time. That it's impossible to live above sin. And that as long as we're in this world, we must partake of a certain number of sins of this life. 
those who teach this doctrine quote numerous scriptures that pertain only to the unregenerate man who has never had a salvation experience. Specifically, people reference the Apostle Paul in the seventh chapter of Romans, where he is describing what he was like before he met Jesus. In 1 Peter 1.16, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The Apostle Paul says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. According to that verse, if you find excuses for habitual sin, you don't have the knowledge of God. Because he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. In other words, the only reason you would sin is not having a knowledge of God. So if you are making excuses for sin and you're a Christian, this is strong evidence that you're not reading your Bible. Let's look at some other passages very quickly. John 5:14. After Jesus had healed a man, he found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. John 8:11. To the woman of Samaria, Christ said, Go and sin no more. 1 John 2:1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. Romans 6, 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. When people again share the attitude of Christ concerning sin, in other words, that it's not acceptable and there's no excuse for it, and they begin to abide in Christ, then multitudes will again begin to be healed. It will it will look like the New Testament church and then broadcasts like this won't be necessary anymore. Unfortunately, until that happens, it's necessary for this kind of teaching to go out. And so, God himself has established the price of faith. Love God, read his word, obey his commands, and believe his promises. Now, that may seem like an impossible price, but God gives you the power by his blood, the blood of Jesus, who saves from all sin. He gives you this power, and you are kept by the power of God. Second Thessalonians 3.3 3, The Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Or Jude 24, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. God not only commands that we abide in him, but he makes it possible by giving us power to resist the devil in temptation. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as common to men, but God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 
So those who have a real desire to please God, those who read their Bibles and pray, those who are attaining holiness day by day, it's these people who are shouting in victory over sickness, over the power of the enemy. God has given them this faith. Now, faith is listed as one of the nine gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 9. All Christians have a certain amount of faith. It's impossible even to be saved without it. At the moment of salvation, faith begins to grow like a fruit, for fruit is a fruit of the Spirit. For faith is a fruit of the Spirit as well as a spiritual gift. See Galatians 5.22. As some trees in an orchard produce very little fruit or fruit of poor quality, so some Christians seem to produce very little fruit of the Spirit. The fruit has to grow and develop. It has to be built upon the Word of God and only upon the Word of God. The experience and testimonies of others will give you hope, but you must have faith. Now, we're out of time for today's broadcast. But I want to say to you, please, we are pleading with God for the full baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost baptism, and we will receive it because the Word of God says He will give it to us. Look at Luke, the 11th chapter. Now, we're out of time today, but you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. Visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, where you can listen to this message and past messages. We love you. God bless you. God bless you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.